0: So as Holger said, I first came to this in about 2016, early 2016. And I thought I was on my own. And I thought I was going crazy. Because I didn't know of any other brethren who were in the Church of Christ who were preterists. Until I looked on YouTube and I found Steve. And I uh, called Steve and then Holger had called me right back. So I came to this... Early on in 2016, however, I had ignored a lot of the time statements for about 10 years. So if you go back to 2005, that's when I realized that the Church of Christ had their eschatology all messed up. I saw in 2005 the time statements of the New Testament, of the coming of the Lord in that generation. But because I didn't didn't have a network of anyone to contact. I ignored this, um, hoping to find some answers, and it was about 10 years later that I I came to this. So I struggled with this idea for quite a while. And as Holger said, I was on board, but the very last straw for me, my my last bulwark that I was holding on to was 2 Peter 3. And so I ignored 2 Peter 3, for probably a year or more because I was afraid. I knew I was already on board. I realized that the Lord must have come in some way which fulfilled the second coming and yet I was terrified because I didn't have anyone to confirm anything with or use as a a sounding board. So I ignored 2 Peter 3. So... As we look at this, the elements of the Jewish world, we have this word stoikion in the Greek, and that's the word here. It's Strong's number 4747. And I want us just to take a look at the definition. So Strong's defines it here as something orderly in arrangement. That is by implication a serial, a basal, a fundamental, an initial, a constituent, and then he says, an element, a principle, or a rudiment. So this word, stoichion, occurs a total of seven times in our New Testament. And so stoikion, as it's used by the New Testament writers, never, ever refers to the elements of the periodic table or the material creation. It never refers to that. This word is always used in the New Testament to refer to the elements of Judaism. So, when we get to 2 Peter 3, I want you to notice the text here. Because Peter uses this Greek word stoikion in this context. He says says here, Beloved, I write to you this second epistle in both of which to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before, now notice this, by the holy prophets. So the holy prophets here is not referring to the prophets of the New Testament, because the New Testament was still being written. It's referring to the prophets of the Old Covenant. And so specifically, what Peter is referencing here in this verse is Isaiah 28 and 14 and verse 22, and then Isaiah 65 and 66. So he says, End of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now Peter reminds them that what was spoken by those Old Testament prophets regarding the second coming of Christ. So when we look at Isaiah 28, 14, and also verse 22 here, This is the text that Peter is in reference to regarding the mockers of 2 Peter 3. So when you look at Isaiah 28, which is part of the little apocalypse, if you know anything about that. He says here with stammering lips, now listen, in another tongue he will speak to this people. So as we analyze the text, this is in context of the judgment of Israel in the little apocalypse the tongues were for a sign of judgment so when god judged a nation back then he brought the judgment upon them by a foreign or an alien power they came into the land and they 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 destroyed and they pillaged and so this foreign power spoke a different tongue or a different language so that is the isaiah of or the the idea of isaiah 28:11 so we know that Isaiah twenty-eight and eleven is quoted by Paul in First Corinthians fourteen verses twenty-one and twenty-two, and we know that that scripture, that Old Testament scripture, had a direct prophetical and eschatological application to Paul's day and time. So it had a first-century application and a first-century fulfillment. So when we look at First Corinthians, where Paul quotes from. Isaiah 28, look what he says here. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and of other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me. So Paul says that tongues were for a sign, but for a sign of what? Notice, therefore tongues are for a sign. In other words, that God is or he's about to judge the nation tongues is a sign of judgment upon a nation, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. So what I want us to see is that the stammering lips and the another tongue scripture is in the context of the mockers of second Peter three during the time that God would lay in Zion, the spiritual heavenly Zion, a foundation stone. So this is in the time of the first century. So look at Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion, that is the heavenly or the spiritual Zion, a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not act hastily. Well, I want you to notice the fulfillment. So here we have 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Well, what was the foundation? It was the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He says, and another builds upon it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. He was the stone that the builders rejected. So this proves that Christ is the stone of Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, And the stone of the spiritual Zion was laid by Paul and the apostles in the time frame of the first century, which would be the time frame of the mockers. But in the time frame of the laying of the stone in Zion, there would be mockers or scornful men who made a covenant, and I'm going back to Isaiah 28, but they made a covenant with death and they made lies their refuge. That is, as Bobby pointed out, a perverse and crooked generation. It was for their day and their time. So they made a covenant with death and they made lies their refuge. So this places the mockers of 2 Peter 3 in the time frame of the first century, which is Peter's focus. So this simply proves that Peter's eschatology is the eschatology of the Old Covenant prophets. There is no difference, folks. So this proves that the Old Covenant eschatology is New Covenant eschatology. Look at 2 Peter 3 and 3. Peter says, knowing this first, that scoffers... Remember, the scoffers go back to Isaiah 28, which is part of the little apocalypse in the time that God would lay a foundation stone during the time of the life or the generation rather of Christ that the scoffers would come in the last days walking according to their own lust now notice what they would say here where is the promise of his coming now what coming is this is it the first coming what coming is this it's the parousia it's the second coming so here as Peter makes a connection to Isaiah 28 and the mockers Peter is giving the interpretation in context and he's saying that the mockers would be asking and mocking where is the promise of the parousia so these are the scornful men of Isaiah 28 14 and Isaiah 28 22 it's one and the same. Look at Isaiah 28:14. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men. You see that? These are the mockers that Peter references. Who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. Now therefore, do not be mockers. Mockers and scoffers are the same thing. They're parallel to one another. Lest your bonds be made strong. That's the bonds Of the tribulation period that Rome would bring upon the nation. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole land. It says earth, but it means land. That's what it means. That's what it's in reference to. So what land was destruction coming upon? During the time of the laying of the foundation stone. During the time of the mockers. Israel the land of Judea So this is exactly equivalent folks to 2 Peter 3:10 Now notice both the earth that's the whole land of Isaiah 28:22 so Peter says both the earth the land and the works that are in it will be burned up that's the fires of Rome coming upon all of the cities of the land of Judea. So Peter is appealing to the Old Testament Jewish prophets for New Testament eschatology. There is no difference. And so it's in, the, the, in Isaiah that we find the mention of the mockers, the scoffers, that would come in Israel's last days. And it's in Isaiah that we find mention of the destruction of the whole earth And it's in Isaiah that we find the new heaven and the new earth. So all of these constituent elements are found in 2 Peter 3, which proves the 2 Peter 3's eschatological connection to the prophet Isaiah. So Peter is writing to the Jewish diaspora, the dispersion that are among the Gentiles. That's Hosea 8 and verse 8, that God has scattered... Israel among the nations. And so they would have been familiar with Old Covenant judgment language. So the language of Isaiah and the prophets. And that's why Peter is reminding them of what the Old Testament prophets said regarding the parousia. So let's take a look at 2 Peter 3 and 10. But the day of the Lord. Now I've highlighted, highlighted in yellow the day of the Lord out of this text. Because I want us to look at this term. The day of the Lord. Will come as a thief in the night. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Alright. So we look at this day of the Lord. Highlighted in yellow. And I want us to look at how it's been used by the Old Testament prophets. prior. So Isaiah 13 and 6. Wail for the day of the Lord. Do you see that? The day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. This is dealing with the judgment of God upon Babylon. It's a day of the Lord. So every day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's a day of destruction. Look at Amos 5 and 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It's going to be a day of darkness, not light. Amos 5 and 20. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? So if it's not a day of light, it's not a positive thing. It's a day of darkness. It's a negative thing. Judgment is coming on the land in the day of the Lord. So notice, this deals, and Amos here deals with the Assyrian invasion. So... Obadiah 1 and verse 15. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. That's judgment. Zephaniah 1 and 7. For the day of the Lord is at hand. 1 and 14. The great day of the Lord is near. So the day of the Lord is nothing more than a Hebraic idiom for the judgment of God falling upon a nation. Thus the great day of the Lord is the day of judgment. It's a day of doom. It's a day of gloom. It's a day of darkness and not light. And so it's a great day of the Lord and it was it was never a day in which God appeared physically, visibly, or bodily. Nowhere in the Old Testament when it refers to the day of the Lord did God ever appear in physical bodily form but nonetheless he appeared did he not he appeared in judgment and his judgment was poured out when he appeared and so the great day of the Lord manifested itself in and through the elements of judgment and wrath but no one ever saw God manifest himself physically they never saw God manifest himself visibly or bodily in the Old Testament. This never happened. So why is it, folks, when it comes to the writings of the New Testament, does anyone think that the day of the Lord would be a physical, visible, and bodily manifestation of the Lord? If it was never that in the Old, why would it be that in the New? We believe, right, in the churches of Christ that the Old Covenant is the New Covenant concealed. Do we not believe that? Have we not preach that from the pulpit and that the new covenant is the old covenant revealed well if we believe it and we've said it and we preached it from our pulpits and in the old covenant the day of the lord was never a physical visible bodily manifestation then why would we believe that that's exactly what it is in the new covenant if the new covenant is the old covenant revealed why would we believe that it makes no sense to me so if this language does not mean such in the Old Testament, and it does not, and if, it, if the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and it is, then why would it mean in the New Testament what it did not mean in the Old Testament? That's my question. So notice 2 Peter 3 and 10. But the day of the Lord will come in which the heavens will pass away. So I, I, as I was thinking about this, I was I'm thinking to myself: Well, did the Old Testament prophets use this term of the heavens passing away in connection to the Day of the Lord? And if they did, was it literal? Was anything about this literal? Well, did the literal heavens and earth pass away with the old covenant age? Yes or no? Which is it? It's either yes or it's either no. And if it, if yes, then why are we still here? If if the Oh, if the heavens and the earth passed away at the day of the Lord in the old covenant age, why are we here in the new covenant age? We wouldn't have an earth to be here on. So Isaiah 13, 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Now watch this. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. Why? Because the day of the Lord is darkness. It's not light. And so the sun will be darkened and it's going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. So here is the heavens and passing away at the day of the Lord, is it not? Is this not the heavens passing away? They're not going to give their light? The sun will be darkened? Look at Isaiah 34 and 1. Some of our brethren have already been here. But I'm going to use this for a different purpose. Come near you nations to hear... And heed you people. Let the earth, that's the land, and all that is in it, the world, and all things uh, that come forth from it. Now notice what Isaiah says. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. And that's not all nations of the globe. That's all nations of the region, of the land. And His fury against their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. Watch. He has given them over to the slaughter. This is the day of the Lord. It's judgment. Look at Isaiah 34 and 3. Also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses. And the mountains shall be melted. Is that word used in 2 Peter? Melted. It's used in 2 Peter. But notice what he says. When God's judgment falls on the nations. That the mountains will be melted with their blood. This blood literally melt? A mountain made out of rock? No, it does not. This is Hebraic hyperbole. But nonetheless, the mountains are melted with their blood. Look at this. All the hosts of heaven shall be what? What's it say? Dissolved. Dissolved. Is this not the exact language? Verbatim. The, the exact language terms that are used in 2 Peter. Exactly. The heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll and all their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine and as a fruit falling from a fig tree. Now watch this. My soul, sword shall be bathed in heaven. It shall come down on Edom. This is the, uh, the focus of the judgment, the land of Edom. And on my people and uh, on the people of my curse for judgment. Look at verse 30, uh, verse 6. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It's made overflowing with fatness. And the blood of the lambs and the goats and the fat and the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. That is a city in the land of Edom. And a great slaughter in the land of Edom. This is the day of the Lord. This is judgment falling. This is not the destruction of the globe. But nonetheless judgment from God is falling. It is the day of the Lord. Look at verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Here again we have at the day of the Lord the heavens passing away. That's exactly what Peter said would happen. But it didn't happen literally here in Isaiah 34, did it? But nonetheless it happened. Someone's heavens and earth passed away, but it wasn't the global heavens and earth passing away. So this is Jewish judgment language, and it's the exact same language used in the New Testament. So when God dissolves something, we go back to Isaiah 34 and 4. It is judged and condemned. That's the idea behind the word. And it's destroyed in judgment, not on the level of its periodic table of existence. That's what I want us to understand. So in 2 Peter 3.10, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. This is at the day of the Lord when God's judgment falls. But how does it fall, folks? It falls with a great noise. Well, then it would only be it would only makes sense for the prophets of the Old Testament if Peter's using this language. Then the prophets of the Old Testament must have used the exact same language somewhere. Isaiah 29 and 6. He says, You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder, or earthquake, and what? A great noise. Does the great noise here in Isaiah 29 indicate the passing of the, the material creation? Yes or no? I say, no, it cannot be. It cannot be. If the great noise here at the day of the Lord and judgment of this land indicates the passing of material creation, then we're not here today. Do you see the fallacy of this argument? So the great noise can fall. God's judgment can be there at the day of the Lord and there will be a great noise in which your blood can melt the mountains. And yet none of this language is wooden. None of it is literal. It's all Jewish judgment language indicating a great destruction is coming upon the land. Now, Notice I should have highlighted this. So with storm and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. Well, does Peter mention the flame of a devouring fire in 2 Peter 3? He most certainly does. Look at the great noise, because the great noise is part of the punishment of judgment. It has nothing to do with the destruction of the periodic table of elements. So, Zephaniah 1 and 14, the noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. This is key, folks. That's why, as Holger says, we've got to go back and study the Old Testament. These terms are going to be found in the Old Testament if we just look for them. And so it doesn't take a person very long. You get a concordance out and you look up the noise of the day of the Lord. You're going to find all of these references that I have here. And you're going to see very quickly that the noise of the day of the Lord is very bitter. What happens in battle? I have talked to, in my life, two men who were there on D-Day. They're dead now. Two men that were there. One man said that as he was getting off, he was on one of the ships. He said that the noise of that day was deafening. Why? Because it's a day of battle, right? It's a day of death and destruction. Nations are going to war. And when nations go to war, there is a great noise of battle and destruction. So the great noise is just simply the part of the punishment of the day of God. But the punishment was never the destruction of the globe, was it? Because we're still here. The globe is still here. It was always a regional judgment upon the land. A judgment that was local. So if the great noise indicated the literal destruction of the globe, then none of us would be here because the globe would be destroyed back then. So why would this exact language mean something in the New Testament that it never meant in the Old Testament. Why? Why would we believe that this exact language means something in the New Testament that it never meant in the Old? Who gave us this idea? Who? Probably the Roman Catholic Church. More than likely. I don't really know, but I'm just guessing. So why is it that when folks read about this great noise of the day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3... Why is it that they want to argue that it's in connection with the destruction of the globe and the universe rather than simply a regional judgment of God upon a people or upon a land at the time? Why is that? Well, they don't understand because they don't read. They don't study. So we look at 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12. The elements will melt with the fervent heat. Both the earth, that's gay, the land, and the works that are in it will be burned up. So the futurists tell us, well, this is the decreation of the physical or material universe. That is false doctrine. It is not what that is. This is Jewish judgment language that Peter Uses because he's inspired by the same Holy Spirit that the Old Testament prophets were inspired by, he's using their judgment language to depict the AD 70 judgment upon the land of the Jews at the end of the age. Second Peter 3 and 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved. Where did Peter get his language from? There's nothing new here. Is this new language? No. It's language that's been used before by the Old Covenant prophets to depict a local judgment in the land. But here, Peter says, the heavens, or these things, will be dissolved. Notice in verse 12, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the earth will melt with fervent heat. The earth, or the land, Isn't that exactly what happened when Rome came into the land? Didn't Rome begin their invasion in the north with Vespasian as he came in from the north and he started to put down the Jewish revolt in every city of the Jews? He went from city to city. Josephus says he burned it down and he slaughtered everyone they came in contact with. He burned the land down. And Josephus, I should have put it in here, but Josephus stated that basically, I'm paraphrasing, if you were a Jew during that time and you came into the land, the land was so different from the destruction that you would not recognize where you were. So it was the equivalent to an atom bomb going off in their day as Rome came into the land and set fire. They burned up the land with fervent heat every, every place they went. So is the idea in the language of the heavens being dissolved and the earth melting being on fire, is that a new concept? No. Or has it been used before? It's been used before. So we look at the witness of the Old Testament prophets in Psalms 46, six. notice this. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved, and he, this is God, uttered his voice, and what happened? What happened? The earth melted. When He uttered His voice. Is this literal? No. No. Nevertheless, when God uttered His voice, judgment came. And the Jewish writers, or rather the Hebrew writers, said the earth melted. Are they being literal? No. This is Jewish or Hebraic judgment language. Psalm 75, 2 and 3. When I chose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all the inhabitants are dissolved. What's the difference between melted and dissolved? Not a nickel's worth the difference between melted and dissolved. It's the same thing. When God's judgment comes upon the land, the earth or the inhabitants melt. They are dissolved. Amos 9 and 5. The Lord God of hosts... He who touches the earth, and what happens? What happens when God touches the earth, folks? It melts. It melts. You see? <clears throat> All we've got to do is study our Bible. So this isn't language depicting the obliteration of the globe or the destruction of the periodic table of elements, but it's language depicting the judgment of God as it came upon the people of the land at that time. So God is coming down for judgment and when He touches the earth in judgment the earth melts away it is dissolved it is destroyed in His judgment. Micah chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 Behold the Lord is coming out of His place this is the coming of the Lord He will come down right right He comes down out of heaven. So this idea is found in the Old Testament. And he treads upon the high places of the earth. And when he treads upon the high places of the earth, what happens? What's the text say? The mountains melt and the valleys split. This is Jewish judgment language. Is this literal? No, no. But nevertheless, it's judgment language depicting the judgment of God. Nahum 1 and 5. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves. Same idea. Nahum 2 and 6. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. Peter uses this word. He uses this exact phrase, this term. This is dealing with God's judgment on Nineveh. Its palace is dissolved. When God comes down and he judges it, your palace is going to be dissolved. Your mountains are going to melt. Your earth is going to be burnt up. Not literally. No, no, no. It doesn't mean the globe. That's what I meant. It doesn't mean the globe just simply means that God is judging you. Look at Zechariah 14. I'm getting into Holger's territory with Zechariah 14. So this shall be the plague in which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Notice, their flesh shall dissolve. Is this talking about a nuclear event in 2022? Where Russia bombs Ukraine and Ukraine bombs Russia. And all of their flesh dissolves. No, no, this is Hebraic judgment language. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet and their eyes will dissolve in their sockets and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. This is the judgment of of AD 70 where God is going to remove any ability that they have to witness against him. You see, so he's going to remove their eyes. He's going to remove their tongue. It's going to melt. They're not going to be able to witness against His kingdom and His glory and His reign. They're going to suffer defeat and being judged. That's what this means. And this is expressed in the word dissolved. That's all this means. And thus what we find in 2 Peter 3 is nothing more than Jewish judgment language. This is exactly the language of the prophets. It's exactly what 2 Peter said he was reminding them of. I'm reminding you of what the Old Testament prophets spoke. It doesn't depict in any way, shape, or form the destruction of the globe or the universe or the periodic table of elements. No. So look at 2 Peter 3.13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This touches on... uh, Roy's lesson: This is the new Jerusalem, the new creation realized and consummated. And so Peter gets his new heaven and new earth theme from Isaiah 65 verses 17 and 18. I'm sorry if I tread on anyone else's territory here, but this is the nature of eschatology. And so Isaiah is the only Old Testament prophet, folks, that uses this exact phrase in prophecy. Now, there are other statements that refer to the exact same thing, but Isaiah is the only one who uses this exact phrase, the new heaven and the new earth. So Isaiah 65, 17 and 18, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem as rejoicing in her people a joy. So the new heaven and the new earth is the new Jerusalem. It is the new creation. It's the new covenant dwelling place for God's people. It's the world of the new covenant. It's the world of Messiah. That's what it is. It's one and the same. It's the realm in which the church now exists. So it's the heavenly realm of the Spirit. It is the world above. Remember, I think it's in John 8 and 23. Where is it, Holder? Where you said, I'm from above and you are from below. I think it's John eight twenty three. Nevertheless, Jesus told the Jews, He goes, I'm from above. What does that mean when He said, I'm from above? It means He's from the world above. He's heavenly, you see. He's the Son of God, incarnate in the flesh. He said, you are from below. There's two different worlds here. The world above and the world below. But there's a time in which God blends these two worlds because Relationship is going to be restored through the gospel. And so we have the blending or the reuniting of heaven and earth. And these two worlds come into contact once more. Relationship is restored. And so nowhere in Isaiah 65 does God destroy the globe or the universe. Nowhere. Isaiah 65, folks, is about, and 66, is about God judging and destroying old covenant Israel after the flesh and fully bringing in the new covenant world, the world from above. Isaiah 65 and 12, Therefore I will number you, that is Israel, for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. This is a, a Roman sword and a Roman slaughter. This is AD 70. Isaiah 65, 17, and 18. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem. Now here is a Hebraic parallelism here. Jerusalem and her people are connected. They're one and the same. The new Jerusalem is made up of and inhabited by the people. See? Christians, New Covenant Christians. So, this is the case of Old Covenant Israel being destroyed, fully done away with, and New Covenant Israel being fully established and built as the new creation of God, as the world above is fully established and consummated in the world below, in which God is reunited with man. And therefore, if it is the case that Isaiah was not speaking of the destruction of the globe and the material universe, but was speaking of judgment and destruction of old covenant Israel after the flesh, and Peter was quoting from Isaiah 65 as his text, then it must be the case, folks, that Peter could not have been speaking of the destruction of the globe or the material universe. But Peter had to be speaking. About the judgment and destruction. Of old covenant Israel. After the flesh in AD 70. And that is our position. The heavens and the earth. Passing away with a great noise. And the elements melting with fervent heat. And being burned up. Is simply employing Jewish judgment language. For the destruction of the elements. Of the old covenant Jewish world. And it is not. Not. It is not the destruction of the elements of the periodic table of material creation. And that's the straw that broke this camel's back.